0: Welcome to Topic Five, where we consider, in this podcast, the lawyer's highest duty, and that is the duty to the court and the administration of justice. To get underway, we're going to listen to a clip. See if you can identify it. A recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. If Lieutenant Kendrick gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched, then why did he have to be transferred? Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the Code Red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object, when you went bad, you cut these guys loose. Your Honor, you are mortgaged inside a phony trance. Your Honor, you doctored the logbook. You forced the doctor. Consider yourself a lieutenant. Colonel Jefferson, did you order the Code Red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago, and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. Recognize that scene? It's from the movie A Few Good Men. Very famous courtroom scene where a skillful cross examination breaks the truth and the truth is revealed for justice and victory. But is this the reality of a lawyer's relationship with the court? Well, the answer is yes and no. It may be one scene that's inspired many people to become lawyers, but it's probably not an accurate portrayal of how the justice system works or indeed the obligations we have when uh, working as advocates within the court system. A lawyer's duty to the court and the administration of justice is the lawyer's paramount duty, and that is for good reason. If our paramount duty was to our client, then lying or being less than candid with the court would be justified on the basis that our client's obligations and duties are higher. But that is not the case. Clients will come and go. But a lawyer's relationship with the court and the administration of justice is continual and exists throughout the life of legal practice. For this reason, we say that the duty to the court trumps the duty to the client And for this reason, it's important to note that there is a hierarchy that's implicit within the Australian solicitors conduct rules. Rule three of the rules makes the hierarchy clear and it states, a solicitor's duty to the court and the administration of justice is paramount and prevails to the extent of inconsistency with any other rule. The duty to the court and the administration of justice goes to the heart of what it means to be a professional and to act with integrity It is also integral in maintaining the rule of law and justice in Australia. In the Council of the Queensland Law Society and Right, the Court of Appeal noted, a practitioner's duty to the court arises out of the practitioner's special relationship to the court. The lawyer's duty to the court requires candour, honesty and fairness. The appellant abused her role as an officer of the court by relying on materials that she knew to be false and in deliberately and recklessly recklessly misleading this court in an attempt to further the interest of her clients and family. Her conduct was made more serious by its repetition. The effect of the administration of justice and public confidence in it substantially depends on the honesty and reliability of practitioners' submissions to the court. This duty of candour and fairness is quintessential to the lawyer's role as an officer of the court. It's a very helpful summary and a very timely reminder of the way the courts see the interrelationship between lawyers and their obligations to the court. When you're admitted to practice, you will be required to swear an oath to act honestly and in in accordance with the law. The words of that oath is, I swear by almighty God that I will well and honestly conduct myself in the practice of my profession as a member of the legal profession and as an officer of this honourable court to the best of my knowledge and ability. Do you notice in the oath There's nothing in the words said there about putting the client first. And that's because as lawyers, we believe that the best interests of our clients are best served by maintaining the rule of law and the integrity of the justice system. The duty to the court also means that there is a duty to uphold the rule of law. So if you're engaged in an area of law that doesn't involve the courts, perhaps you're a conveyancer, or you might do other such work at a community justice centre. Nonetheless, you are still under a legal and moral obligation to uphold the law. And that means behaving ethically and acting as a fit and proper person in the administration of all legal work. As Adrian Evan notes, a lawyer's duties in the context of adversarial civil proceedings can be many and varied. Whilst it's a lot clearer in criminal jurisdiction in terms of what your role as an advocate is, when you're wearing the hat of a civil litigator, you might be many things. You might be an advocate in the court, you might be a broker of a settlement agreement, an agent of your client, a deal maker, a negotiator, or a mediator. Whilst criminal law is more prescribed, and we detail this in your readings. Um, There are particular roles in that sphere for the prosecutor and defence lawyer. But it's exploring some of these other roles and permutations in the civil context that we particularly highlight some of the particular duties to the court. And I want to explore further the way that these many and varied roles that Adrian Evans talks about can really challenge our loyalty and utmost duty. And we'll give you some pertinent case examples where lawyers have made the wrong decision, which hopefully unpack for you why that duty to the court and the administration of justice is critical and you can't get carried away with the adversarial desire to win at all costs. As you also come to read in topic 10, Australia does have a crisis in terms of access to justice. There is no legal aid available for civil disputes and accessibility to competent legal services in this area is an increasing issue that the Productivity Commission and the Law Council of Australia have looked at, but is complex in terms of trying to resolve it. It's a multifaceted problem. However, This problem is all interrelated with a lawyer's duty to the court and the administration of justice, because how we perceive our profession and our duty to the administration of justice, particularly our role in the court and to dispute resolution, is pretty key in addressing access to justice. Every lawyer should be committed to contributing to a working legal system that resolves disputes expeditiously and cost effectively no lawyer should be wanting to win at all costs and drag out disputes and litigation for the benefit of their purse or for the sake of winning. Our duties to the court and the administration of justice extend into any area where we deal with the law and this is affirmed in the glossary of the Australian Solicitors Conduct Rules which defines the word court as including anybody described as a tribunal exercising judicial or quasi-judicial functions A professional disciplinary tribunal, an industrial tribunal, administrative tribunal, um, any investigative inquiry, any Royal Commission, any arbitration or mediation or other form of dispute resolution. So that means court and the duties that associate with court also extend to alternate dispute resolution, tribunals, Royal and Coronial Commissions and other areas where we're required to exercise justice. At times, the duty to assist the court and to be candid will actually see lawyers working against the interests of their client. For example, the obligation to hand up or acknowledge authority that is against your client's position is in the solicitor's conduct rules, and that might be contrary to your client's desire or to the interests of their case. In all interactions with the court, the duty is to act with the competence, candor and honesty. Bell and Abila notes that there are three overlapping areas of professional responsibility when it comes to a lawyer's paramount duty to the court. And they are number one, the duty of candor. Now this includes telling the truth, using court process in a way that's honest and respectful. Then number two, the duty of integrity. So, avoiding sharp practice and extending courtesy and respect to other practitioners and to the court. And thirdly, the duty to educate clients in relation to court processes and procedure, so that we can promote public confidence in the administration of justice. I think this threefold way of unpacking the duty to the court is a really helpful categorisation of all the permutations of the duty. And we'll come back to that framework and we're going to use that framework to compartmentalise bits and pieces throughout this podcast. Let's start with the duty of candour and frankness. Lawyers are required to be candid and what that means is to be truthful at all times and forthright to the court with respect to facts and law. Now, this necessarily means that abiding by the procedural rules of the court is vital and not using court process in abusive ways or ways that are sharp um, to take adversarial advantage. The duty of candor concerns um, how we behave before proceedings are commenced, when proceedings are commenced and in court making submissions, but also in the informal resolution efforts we make along the way, such as alternate dispute resolution. At every stage, candour and forthrightness is essential. Now, before proceedings are uh, commenced, avoiding abusive process is one very important way that we exercise that duty of candour. Maintaining your independence and fulfilling the duty of administration of justice requires legal practitioners to determine whether or not proceedings ought to be commenced and to continually reevaluate that and to determine whether or not they should be maintained as the evidence unfolds. Civil procedure rules and court rules in most jurisdictions require legal practitioners not to commence or maintain proceedings unless the lawyer believes on a reasonable uh, view of the facts and law that there are reasonable prospects of success based on provable facts and a reasonably arguable view of the law. So have a look, for example, at Sections 37M and N of the Federal Court of Australia Act and Schedule 2, 2, Rule 2 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law Application Act, which actually requires you to certify a matter as having reasonable prospects before commencing in New South Wales. Once proceedings have been commenced, when we're advocating in court, the duty to the court remains paramount. This is even if it's contrary to your duty to your client. Misleading the court or lying or being less than frank is a clear breach of that duty. Now, this is well illustrated in two cases, Vernon and Bosley, a UK decision and Legal Services Commissioner and Mullins. In Vernon and Bosley, it was an interesting case, and we'll work through this in our uh, tutorial. But essentially, what had occurred was a a very tragic uh, motor vehicle accident where a father's two children were killed when the vehicle in which they were um, passengers was driven into a river in an accident with the nanny. The father, as a consequence, suffered mental harm and brought personal injury proceedings in relation to psychiatric injury, which was acted for by personal injury lawyers. Now, um, at the same time, and due to the terrible set of circumstances he found himself in, the uh, father's marriage broke down with the mother of the children and divorce proceedings um, were commenced. And there was a dispute in those proceedings in relation to the custody or residence of the remaining children of the marriage. The Father uh, treating psychiatrist, had given evidence in the personal injury proceedings for psychiatric harm that he was in a very bad way. And this was done in order, obviously, to maximise damages um, and to compensate him for the loss of having to suffer through the death of his two children. That same psychiatrist, though, had also given evidence subsequently before the judgment was handed down in the personal injury proceedings in relation to the uh, psychiatric state of the plaintiff in terms of his fitness in the family law proceedings to care for the other children. And the psychiatrist said that he'd made a remarkable recovery and was doing very well in terms of um, uh, his psychiatric state and moving forward and therefore was fit to take care of the children. Now obviously those two sets of evidence showed that there had been a significant change in his condition and that would have had a material fact on the award of damages and the judgment that was to be handed down in the personal injury proceedings. Unfortunately, despite being aware of this evidence, the solicitors in the personal injury proceedings did not approach the court or tell the court that the evidence had changed and allowed the court to proceed in error. This then led to um, an application to have the matter reopened and the judgment overturned, um, and it was a very significant matter in terms of misconduct by solicitors. Uh, Now, the court said uh, in Vernon and Bosley that the solicitor had failed to act with the utmost candor and to obey the rules of continuing discovery. The court noted, And I quote, It is the duty of every litigant not to mislead the court or his opponent. He will obviously mislead the court if he gives evidence which he knows to be untrue. But he will also do so if, having led the court to believe a fact to be true, he fails to correct it when he discovers it to be false. The duty continues, in my opinion, until the judge has given judgment. Another example of how courts can be misled in terms of evidence and advocacy is the case of Legal Services Commissioner and Mullins, another very interesting case and this time an Australian one. Now in Mullins, uh, we had a situation where we had a barrister and a solicitor acting for a gentleman who was an injured plaintiff. I think it was a car accident uh, injury. And they were seeking compensation for him in relation to his injuries. Now. Mr. The the plaintiff, Mr. White's case, relied on two expert reports that assessed his future care needs and future economic loss. And these uh, reports based their calculations on the basis of a normal future life expectancy for a healthy 48-year-old. Unfortunately, Uh, Mr. White, who was their client three weeks prior to the mediation with the motor accident insurer, uh, disclosed to his barrister and solicitor that he had advanced secondary cancer that was requiring chemotherapy. Now that condition obviously significantly impacted his future life expectancy because it was no longer a healthy life expectancy, but one that had to be reduced for vicissitudes of cancer. Mr. White instructed his solicitor and barrister that he didn't want the cancer diagnosis disclosed to the insurance company who was on the other side unless they were legally obligated to do so because he wanted to have his case finished. Unfortunately, Mullins, the barrister, formed the view that the cancer diagnosis did not need to be disclosed to the insurer, provided he didn't make positive submissions at the mediation about the life expectancy of the client. Now, that's a slippery slope and it was a really silly decision because they did rely on the expert reports that projected life expectancy based on a normal life expectancy and really the insurer was misled. A settlement was achieved and uh, damages paid and it then became apparent to the insurer that they had been misled through the silence of the barrister and the solicitor as to the true circumstances of the plaintiff's condition. Both were referred to the Legal Services Commissioner for disciplinary action. And the tribunal found that the barrister had intentionally deceived his opponent and was guilty of professional misconduct. Uh, The solicitor, interestingly, was also found guilty of uh, professional misconduct. And that was because he stood by and maintained silence without disclosing his client's true condition. And this was considered to be fraudulent deception of the opponent. So sometimes we can mislead through our acts and omissions and silence, and there's a positive obligation to act with candour and to make sure that the court and the tribunal, together with our opponent, has all of the necessary facts. As an adjunct to this, a legal practitioner also can't stand by and watch their client lie to the court without doing anything about it. In the case of Legal Profession Complaints Committee and Cain, in your text shows that failing to take steps to correct what you know to be misleading or untrue evidence can result in disciplinary action against you as a practitioner. The duty of candour also includes a lawyer's obligation not to make allegations in court without proper evidentiary foundation. It's funny, isn't it, that in a lot of lawyer shows people think that lawyers can make anything up uh, and that law is a largely creative job of putting a spin on the evidence or trying to spin a story that's favourable to the client. Quite the contrary. The Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules make it very clear. Rule 21.3 explicitly requires you as a solicitor to have reasonable grounds based on factual material available before you make an assertion in a court document, a submission, an opening or closing address. And your failure to do so may attract disciplinary action, C, Y and M of 1994, where allegations were made in an affidavit that were unsupported by the evidence. Have a look at Co and the New South Wales Bar Association where a barrister falsely saw an affidavit with intent to deceive in family law proceedings in which he was a party. And then Legal Profession Complaints Committee in Guidis, where a client was allowed to swear a false affidavit that was drafted by an inexperienced solicitor. This also points to the idea that carelessness in preparing and filing court documents that contain false or misleading information may also lead to disciplinary action. So the expectations of legal practitioners are very high in terms of honesty and candour. They include a duty not to mislead the court about a practitioner's error and the duty to correct an error if you become aware of one. It's a duty to ensure the law is applied correctly, not to allow the court to fall into appellable error when you know that the court is proceeding on a misapprehension of fact or law. That means providing case citations and most current authorities, rules 17.2.3 and 19.6, and this is even when it's not in your client's interest to do so. See Glebe Sugar Refining Company and the trustees of the port and harbours of Greenoak. It also means not telling half truths and creating false impressions. Have a look at the cases of Meek and Fleming. There, a chief inspector had been demoted because of misleading the court in another matter, and his barrister deliberately referred to him as Mr. and he wore plain clothes. The judge and jury, however, referred to him as chief inspector and the barrister had not informed the court that he had been demoted and that his correct title was no longer Chief Inspector. This was considered to be misleading the court on a half-truth. There's also a duty not to make baseless allegations or false allegations. Additionally, when a matter is awaiting judgment to come down, if a new authority or case is given in the meantime that changes the position or any relevant legislation that hasn't been provided to the court that may affect the judgment becomes apparent, you have a positive duty under Rule 19.8 to advise the court accordingly and to have the matter relisted. You can't commence proceedings or threaten proceedings without proper cause, and you can't use legal proceedings to delay, obfuscate, or obstruct. See White Industries, Queensland Proprietary Limited, and Flower and Heart of 1988. There, a solicitor and barrister commenced and maintained fraud proceedings in order to delay a commercial transaction when they knew the fraud allegations were baseless. Abusive process is an ever-widening area of the law, and courts take very dim views of practitioners who engage in any conduct that frustrates, obfuscates, or delays matters for trial. Consider the example of trolley-loading litigation in discovery, where uh, people deliberately provide copious quantities of irrelevant material in order to frustrate and lengthen the process of discovery. This is unethical behaviour and it is an abusive process. So too is failing to produce documentation or destroying documentation or allowing your client to do so. It can always be something that amounts to a disciplinary finding. And if you're caught in engaging in these practices, you are rolling the dice with your right to practise law. Now, A legal practitioner also has a positive duty to sometimes act contrary to their client's instructions. And that might be in small things such as confining the case to what you see as the relevant issues only as against what the client might want to traverse to present the case expeditiously and efficiently that is consistent with robust advancement on behalf of the client. Now, sometimes this might appear to conflict with the client's instructions and loyalty to the client. But remember, the paramount duty is to the administration of justice and to the court. It is not to the client. When a lawyer's duty to the court conflicts with the duty to the client, a lawyer must disregard the client's instructions. See Giannarelli and Schulz and Wraith, 1988 High Court Judgement. The duty to the court is the same as that owed to the public, ensuring the proper administration of justice. There are also important and specific obligations placed on advocates in court that should be noted. Prosecutors, as officers of the court in criminal law, are to approach their task on the basis that it is a search for truth. They are not to seek convictions at all costs, and I have detailed these special duties in your text. For this reason, the Crown is required to disclose all evidence and all witnesses to the defence that are both helpful and unhelpful to the Crown's case that may go to the issue of innocence or guilt. Rule 29 is directly relevant. Prosecutors as advocates have a particularly onerous duty to assist the court and to ensure that the court is not misled. See Rule 29.1. They're not to have biased or to bias the court against the accused, which means avoiding inflammatory remarks to the jury, 29.3. They can't argue any proposition that the prosecutor does not believe to be capable on reasonable grounds to contribute to a finding of guilt, 29.4. They have to provide all relevant material to the defence, including uh, where there is evidence in relation to key witnesses that might be unfavorable, Rule 29.5 and 29.9. They must also consider the withdrawal or lessening of a charge against an accused if the prosecutor comes across material relevant to the guilt or innocence of the accused, which is subject to immunity, and its disclosure may threaten the integrity of the administration of justice or the safety of a person, 29.6. They must call all witnesses who can provide reasonable admissible evidence that is relevant to the case, 29.7. They must confer with the accused only in the presence of the accused lawyer, 29.9. And they can only use evidence supporting the case that the prosecutor has available, 29.10. And that evidence must be obtained legitimately and legally. Furthermore, a prosecutor must correct any error made by the opposing lawyer on address, on sentence. And that's 29.12. So as you can see, with this large list of duties and obligations, the lawyer is far more than the pit bull in the corner for the client. They're not the mere mouthpiece or tool of the client's bidding. And the practice of law is often a delicate balance between competing duties and ethical values. We'll now consider, in addition to that duty of candor, the next area or scope of the duty, and that's the duty of professionalism. Remember, these arenas often overlap and they're not in isolation by any means. Uh, Thus, the duty of professionalism will also come into the area of the court, which is where we'll start our analysis. Acting as a lawyer requires a degree of discernment and professionality, which uh, shouldn't be discarded or taken lightly. Clients and the public watch very carefully how you conduct yourself, and you must at all times behave with courtesy, civility, professionalism. Now if you practice in a particular jurisdiction or area you'll begin to find that you become familiar with other practitioners in the area and those judicial officers. Here we are moving into the second sphere of Bell and Abela's framework that duty of integrity and it's vital not to be over familiar with court officers or judicial officers in your area of practice. The appearance of a bias or a mates club is extremely damaging to the integrity of the profession and the administration of justice. Rule 18 actually states this, and for good reason. It says, a solicitor must not, in the presence of any of the parties or solicitors, deal with the court on terms of informal personal familiarity, which may reasonably give the appearance that the solicitor has special favour with the court. And we can see why that would be important from the perspective of our clients, Uh, witnesses and the outside world. Talking about witnesses, let's consider some of the special obligations that pertain in terms of the duty to the court. It is true to say there is no property in a witness. There are many specific rules within the Australian Solicitors Conduct Rules concerning how solicitors are to deal with witnesses before and during trial. Rules 23, 24, 25 and 26 are all directly relevant. Lawyers cannot communicate with a witness during adjournment while that witness is under cross-examination and that's in order to keep the integrity of their evidence and to not have that evidence in any way contaminated or changed. They are not to prevent or discourage a witness from conferring with an opponent or from being interviewed by another person involved in the proceedings. Lawyers mustn't confuse or intimidate or harass witnesses, particularly those who might be alleged victims of sexual assault. They mustn't coach witnesses or encourage witnesses to give misleading evidence. Lawyers mustn't interview witnesses together about contentious issues. They should be interviewed separately so as to preserve the integrity of their evidence and not to influence each other with what they want to say. They must take into account any vulnerability of particular witnesses such as those with intellectual disability or a child or those who are the victim of an alleged sexual crime. At all times, the rules are focused on maintaining and preserving the integrity of the evidence before the court and that's part of our duty to the court so that nobody's making up false or misleading statements through coaching or facilitating corroborating evidence. A good example of where this has gone astray and the disciplinary outcomes is the case of Day in Perisher Blue, Proprietary Limited, where solicitors acting for a defendant in personal injury proceedings were referred to the Legal Services Commissioner because they'd actively coached witnesses into giving a certain version of evidence that was favourable to their client. This uh, case is actually contained in your text, so do have a look at it. Let's just talk about civility for a moment. We will touch on this further when we look at uh, later topics, particularly duties to others, but when working alongside other practitioners, there are certain aspects of behaviour that are necessary. Extending professional courtesy to other practitioners is vital. Rule 4.1.2 requires you must be honest and courteous in all dealings in the course of legal practice. Uh, Lawyers who fail to adopt honest, respectful, and courteous communication diminish the public's confidence in the law and the profession and they invite disapproval from their colleagues. It's really important to remember your professional reputation extends well beyond that one retainer, no matter how contentious that matter may be. As a part of the lawyer's role and functions, they're expected to act with courtesy and respect to the court, its officers, the members of the court, their clients and other members of the profession. This means treating the court practices and procedure rules correctly and educating the client to do the same. It'll mean being punctual, prepared, well-spoken and appropriately attired. It also means respecting seniority of other practitioners and waiting your turn. It means not leaving the bar table empty when there's a judicial officer sitting on the bench. There are a lot of little nuances of uh, civility and court procedure that you will need to learn and to adopt. Extending courtesy to court staff, the public and other lawyers by using their correct titles such as Mr, Ms, Your Honour, Registrar, Associate, My Learned Friend is also important. Knowing the right title for the right judicial officer is something you'll need to do. If you consider uh, recent cases where uh, witnesses of certain religious faith were not prepared to stand uh, in courtrooms when the judicial officer entered into the courtroom and took occupation of the bench. They were held in contempt. Now this is a good example of how your job to educate your client is actually part of professionalism. What is the role for you as a lawyer acting for that person who doesn't want to stand in terms of helping them to understand why that's disrespectful and unhelpful to their legal position and educating the client as to what's expected of them in the court process. Courtesy and fairness is also expected in written communication with legal practitioners and spoken communication. Behaving in an inappropriate or unprofessional matter um, invites disapprobation from other practitioners and it, it hinders the efficient administration of justice. Verbal or physical abuse is never acceptable and will warrant disciplinary sanction. If you have a look at the case of New South Wales Bar Association and Jobson of 2002, a barrister was found guilty for unsatisfactory professional conduct when he verbally abused, swore, and made physical contact with the opposing solicitor in a dispute outside the courtroom. Civility also encompasses ensuring correct procedural fairness and avoiding abusive process or sharp practice to obtain tactical advantage. Courtesy requires that you communicate to your opponent if you have an intention to communicate with the presiding judicial officer in a matter before you do so and to provide copies of communication that you're going to send to your opponent. This obligation is required by the Conduct Rule 22.6 and failure to do so may result in cost orders being made against you. Might also warrant a disciplinary complaint. Now look, we will cover this further in Topics 6 and 7 but suffice to say that courtesy is very important. Professionally, your reputation extends beyond that one case you're currently acting in. And no matter how outraged or offended you may feel on behalf of your client by your opposition's position, you must display courtesy. Um, What I would observe also in this regard is from all my years of litigation practice, when you work in a particular area of law or particular courts of jurisdiction, you inevitably come up against the same legal practitioners time and time again. The level of courtesy and professionalism to which you treat those parties will often be a factor that affects how well you can represent your client's interests. If you're punctual, organized, courteous, your reputation will always last beyond that last case you've acted in, and such courtesies will be extended to you. You should remember that it may be you one day who is late to court, missing a document, or needing assistance from an opponent choose how you want to be regarded by your professional peers, and always act with the utmost integrity and respect for all. Let's just now turn to that third area or circle of Abila and Bell's duties. And that is the lawyer's duty to um, educate the client and balance the client's interests against fidelity to the law. Rule 17 requires that lawyers cannot be mere mouthpieces of their client. When acting, a lawyer has to advise the client of prospects and reasonable prospects in the matter and cannot pursue a matter that is baseless, vexatious or unable to be resolved another way. See Rule 7.2. This means that we sometimes have to educate the client in what we can do and what we cannot do. Explaining the rules of ethical conduct to them that prevent us from making, say, submissions that are misleading or untrue to the court or representing a state of affairs to our opponent's solicitor that might not be true. You must remain independent and dispassionate in the exercise of your professional judgment so that you can give proper advice and act with integrity. Consider the case of Legal Practitioner's Complaint Committee in Fleming. This was a good example of a lawyer forsaking the truth for the sake of zealously advancing their client's case. Mr Fleming knew that his client's husband had failed to execute a legally valid will. And yet, on the instructions of his client, he entered into negotiations with the prospective beneficiaries, falsely representing to them that there was a valid will. Now this resulted in um, the beneficiaries agreeing to a less than adequate settlement outcome. And it also referred, uh, saw Mr Fleming referred to the Legal Practitioner's Complaint Committee for misleading conduct. The disciplinary tribunal took a very dim view of his false representations, even though these people were not his client, because they noted that a solicitor must deal with others who aren't their client with candour and honesty in order to uphold the law. Trying to hoodwink them, even on instructions from the client, is wrong. The paramount duty to the court also pervades how we uh, prepare documentation and how we put evidence before the court. Many a practitioner has lost their practicing certificate for swearing false affidavits, making baseless allegations and misleading the court. Consider the example of the Council of Queensland Law Society in Wright, where the solicitor swore a false affidavit, attempting to have witnesses give false evidence and then misled the regulator who was investigating the matter. A practice or habit of lying to advance your client's case at all costs is fraught with danger and wrong. Giving false evidence or preparing documents that contain falsehood or omit what is really relevant and true is always looked upon dimly by the court. Sometimes falsehood can be more subtle and you need to think a bit more carefully about all your dealings with the court. For example, claiming privilege on documentation that is unhelpful to your client's case but is not technically privileged, that is unethical. Or failing to produce documentation under discovery that is required to be produced is also wrong. See Law Society and GUS. The way we deal with this is through diligent and competent preparation. We have to examine the documents in a timely way, give the client full advice of what the evidence suggests and explain ethically what we're obliged to produce to the court this means not engaging in sharp practice too like trolley loading in discovery where you hope to overwhelm your opponent uh, by dumping copious quantities of irrelevant documentation on them this as uh, discussed in legal services commissioner and purya a lawyer's duty to the court includes a responsibility to bring relevant material to the court's attention not expecting the judge to plow through bundles of papers So guiding the court and assisting it is also part of a lawyer's paramount duty. Um, Therefore, as many of you who will enter the profession as graduate solicitors, you'll be cutting your teeth, no doubt, on discovery. You should be aware that this area is pretty fraught with ethical decision-making and you have to make really sure you're clear on what is required of you and act within the civil procedure rules and act with competence and honesty. If you don't know, ask, and if you're in doubt, seek advice, but always choose what is honest and acting with full candour and the duties of your ethical obligations. The roles of the lawyer to educate clients goes further than just explaining the limits of their own ethical conduct. It will necessarily include the obligation to educate clients on court process and procedure, limitation periods, and practice notes for case management to ensure the client adheres to the required rules. Your client's knowledge of the law and legal process is frequently going to be shaped by suits, but it's your job to help them understand that this is a long way from the legal reality. It's sometimes when we take the professional task of educating the client seriously that we mean our interests and those interests of the client may divide. The rules do contemplate this, and it's for that reason that your highest duty, your paramount duty, is to the court and that is a great comfort to you and is also the anchor from which you will work. So remember this duty, the court comes first. Always uh, operate with utmost integrity, candor and honesty when dealing with the court in any way. Help your client to understand why that is important because if they do come to understand this, they'll realize that the law is there to be impartial and fair and that the administration of justice will be upheld by doing so.